It's a stormy night in July 1696 in Boston. One of the taverns near the port is bustling. Sailors, merchants, and locals pack into the watering hole, hoping to keep dry and warm their insides with ales and spirits. A gust of wind and rain rushes into the tavern with three damp men who have recently arrived in town. The flickering oil lamps, spilling amber light, sway and cast long shadows. Still dripping from the rain, a man orders three pints for himself and his two companions at the crowded bar. He slaps an odd-looking coin down on the sticky wooden counter. The barman examines it for a moment. He doesn't recognize the tender. It's gold, yes, but it has strange wavy markings. It's a foreign currency. This wet man has just paid with an Arabian coin. The barman gives the men a once-over. Their sunburned skin is red and peeling. They're English sailors, but their pockets are deep with Arabian money. Where or how they got the coin doesn't matter. It's gold. Pocketing the payment, the barman pours three pints of dark ale, topped with foam, for the men. They clank the mugs and shout cheers. They're here to celebrate. The drunker they get, the louder they become, and the more foreign money they spend. Patrons overhear them reminiscing about the pirate Captain Henry Avery with a sense of fondness and familiarity. But to do so can be dangerous business. Avery's name is well known. It's printed on royal proclamations and in news articles from London to Bombay. Recently, Avery abandoned his loyalty to the English crown in favor of piracy. Now, he and his associates are wanted by the government. In truth, no one in the tavern suspects that these drunkards actually know Henry Avery. And for a good reason. After a few cups, countless sailors claim to know him or have met him. Avery's pirate popularity has turned him into something of a folk hero. Captain Avery is a household name. His acts of piracy are legendary. He is a champion of ordinary people, and especially sailors. Sloshing their pints of ale, the three drunken sailors sing a popular ballad about Avery titled Lately Gone to Sea to Seek His Fortune. Come all you brave boys whose courage is bold, will you venture with me? I'll glut you with gold. Make haste unto Corona, a ship you will find, that's called the Fancy will pleasure your mind. Captain Avery is in her, and calls her his own. He will box her about, boys, before he has done. French Spaniard and Portuguese, the heathen likewise. He has made a war with them until that he dies. The entire pub familiar with the tune joins in, singing the ballad sung across the English-speaking colonies. Now this is the course I intend for to steer, my false-hearted nation to you I declare. 
I have done thee no wrong, thou must me forgive. The sword shall maintain me as long as I live. Little do the other patrons realize, these new arrivals are the real thing. The three men leading the pub in song are, in fact, former crew members of Henry Avery. The money in the barman's hand is from one of the most horrific maritime massacres ever committed and one of the most significant scores a pirate has ever secured. These men are also named on the proclamations and are wanted for their crimes. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. Captain Henry Avery, sometimes known as Long Ben, also known as the King of Pirates, is the first pirate Captain Charles Johnson discusses in his 1724 A General History of Pirates. Some argue that Avery's piratical career lays the foundations for the golden age of piracy. You might say Avery is the very definition of a pirate, merciless, ruthless, and filthy rich. His is the myth and the legend that would inspire thousands to follow in his footsteps. But before Avery becomes the arch-pirate, the black-hearted villain and popular hero, his road to piracy and infamy begins with the humble origins of a man eager to seek his fortune. It's a sunny morning in 1677 in Newton Ferrers, an English fishing village just six miles from Plymouth, on the River Yelm. Ancient woods and rolling green hills surround the serene hamlet. Smoke rises from the chimneys of thatched houses, shops, and local inns. A fresh-faced 17-year-old Henry Avery walks along the river towards the dock, carrying a small sack of personal belongings. The local maritime trade is in full swing. Fishing boats are getting ready for the day's work. But Avery is leaving to set out on his own and make his way in life. One can imagine the nervousness he feels, leaving the comforts of his home. But it is time to say goodbye to the simple life. Little does Avery know 
that he is about to embark on the journey to becoming one of the most famous pirates of all time. Like many famous pirates, their life before entering piracy is foggy. Avery is no different. In a general history of pirates, Charles Johnson believes Avery is far from Plymouth. Some accounts place him as the son of an innkeeper. He is even, at times, given the name John. Nevertheless, all surviving documents list him as Henry Avery, including his handwritten letters. While Avery's origins are murky, experts agree he is born on or around August 20th, 1659, to John and Anne Avery of Newton Ferrers. And young Avery's reason for leaving Newton Ferrers is to join the crew of a merchant ship. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. We don't know too much about Avery's early life before he became a pirate due to the lack of definitive records. But what we do know is that he was likely born in Devon in England, possibly around 1659, 1660. There were several motivations for someone who might want to leave kind of a nice seaside town and actually enter in the world of the seafarer. He probably also knew people through his family that worked at sea, which was very common. You always knew somebody. So again, he would have grown up having heard these stories. And this would have brought kind of this idea of a life of adventure. Many people viewed life at sea as kind of this adventurous, exotic life because it's so different, it's so separate than what people know on land. These are people going out into the great unknown. So this kind of brings forth an idea of adventure for someone who wants to see more. Like Avery, many soon-to-be pirates of the Golden Age, such as Blackbeard, also have origins in the West Country of England, on the brink of adventure and sea life. So what is it that makes this region one of the hotspots for producing pirates? Although historically a home to smugglers, it's not like these seaside villages are dens of murderers and thieves. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. This is a period, particularly the early modern period, where there is a lot of regional specialization. It just so happens that, you know, long arm of land that extends out from the southwest of England is home to a lot of ports, right? Portsmouth, Devon, Bristol to an extent, I think sort of plays into this. A lot of places where communities were effectively maritime communities, right? These are towns and villages whose orientation is not to into the interior hinterlands, but into the, you know, out into the open sea. And their fortunes rise with Britain's increasingly sort of sea-based empire. Avery no doubt earned his sea legs from an early age, making him ready for a career as a merchant sailor. Growing up in a maritime town, he likely became a sailor as a child. He was probably apprenticed to a sailor, which was very common for working class boys who grew up in these maritime towns. By 1688, 11 years since Avery left home, war breaks out in Europe. King Louis XIV of France invades the Rhineland in Germany, sparking a near decade-long conflict, later called the Nine Years' War. With England joining the fight against France's belligerent attempt to gain a broader grip on Western Europe, men are falling in line to join the battle. Some take privateering commissions, attempting to capture and plunder enemy ships in the name of the English crown. Others are ditching their jobs as merchant sailors to join the Royal Navy. 
Henry Avery is one of the latter. So in the late 17th century, England is in this transitional phase where the Royal Navy is becoming more important, but it's still very much the nation's ability to project its power out onto the sea is a kind of combined effort of private men of war, right, or privateers and official warships of the Navy. So when a war breaks out like the Nine Years' War, it's not intuitively obvious that you would join the Navy immediately, right? There are other ways to participate in the war and many sailors much preferred to go the privateer route because the potential pay was better, the disciplinary structures were often less rigorous, and there was a bit more autonomy over how you would handle yourself. And so privateers had a lot more discretion about where they would go, which often was dictated by what sort of plunder was on offer. That didn't necessarily always line up with what perhaps the Navy would want. So as that tension begins to rise, you do see a pretty concerted effort to shift away from relying on privateers because the Navy could give the kind of structured, strategically responsive force that privateers didn't always necessarily provide. Perhaps it is patriotism that drives Avery, or simply the shifting importance of the Royal Navy, or lack of alternative options available. But Avery enlists as a junior officer and serves aboard the HMS Rupert and HMS Albemarle. But his naval career is short-lived. It's the morning of July 10th, 1690 off of Beachy Head in East Sussex. A fleet of English and Dutch ships are en route to battle the French line in the English Channel. And Henry Avery has a front row seat. While we cannot say with certainty what Avery's role is, experts place him in this battle. Aboard the ships, sailors lug gunpowder and cannonballs, ready for the oncoming fight. A lookout spots the French line, and an eerie calm washes over the sailors aboard the English and Dutch ships. You can imagine the bubbling anxiety in Avery's belly, seeing the armada of 70 French vessels almost within firing range. No doubt he wonders, will he make it out alive? Both sides open fire, a maelstrom of hot lead erupts over the water. Avery witnesses ship after ship being pushed back by the French. Each attempt to press in on the enemy fails. A volley of French cannonballs strike a Dutch vessel. It's crippled and begins to sink. A plume of smoke rises and the sailors abandon ship. The fighting lasts hours, minute by minute, Avery and the sailors are growing tired and weak. Morale falls as the French firepower keeps them at bay. The reality of the situation is undeniable. The English and Dutch squadrons are outgunned, outnumbered, and are losing badly. After eight hours, retreat is the only option. The French have won. The final scene is devastating. Countless sailors lie dead or drowning, and over half a dozen English and Dutch ships burn 
and sink, while the survivors limp through the water, back to friendly ports. Avery's time in the Navy is disenchanting. Not only has he seen comrades killed in action and mutilated, the risk to one's life goes beyond the skirmishes of the war. Life aboard naval vessels is rife with savage treatment. Avery has witnessed his comrades being subjected to beatings, even for the smallest of misdemeanors. Senior officers are prone to humiliating their subordinates. Food rations are in short supply and are often rotten and inedible. Hygiene aboard is poor and disease is rife amongst the crew. Avery sees men suffering from scurvy, typhoid and typhus. And on top of everything else, more than once, Avery and other sailors are not paid. At times, the conditions are indistinguishable from a life in prison. Avery wants out, and he gets his wish. He fought in the Royal Navy during the Nine Years' War, starting in about 1688. But it looks like that might have been quite short-lived because in 1690, he was actually discharged because he was one of the participants in a really failed battle against the French. And it was after that that Henry Avery kind of left the naval service and entered into the slave trade. Avery's naval experience isn't without its benefit. He has sharpened his strategic mind, giving him the skills needed to command a vessel and plan attacks. He practices his skills by turning to the brutal and despicable life of a slave trader. According to Royal African Company documents around 1693, Henry Avery is in the Caribbean. He appears to Captain a Logwood Sloop as an unlicensed trader under the alias Long Ben. We don't know how long Avery engaged in the horrific occupation, but this too seems to be a short-lived career. Life as a slaver in the 17th century was much more difficult than life in the Royal Navy. Now, in some ways, you could almost take a look at a life of a slaver and think it could be better than being in the Navy because you were going to get wealthier if you were going to be a slave trader because slave ships brought so much people as cargo. They were very, very well insured and enslaved people brought loads of money into the slave trading business. Unlike a Navy ship, a slave ship is going to be filled with untold horrors that people would never be able to even imagine in any other circumstance. The hold is filled and crammed with people, many of whom are sick, who are injured, who are dying, already dead, screams coming from below, smells due to the lack of sanitation. And the slavers have to put their humanity aside and they have to be in charge of all these enslaved people that they're carrying as cargo. So this would have been a very, very difficult life, probably more psychologically than, let's say, financially. Financially, they would have come out better, but there would have been much more horrific long-term effects for many of the sailors going in than that would have happened had they joined the Navy ships. We cannot say what Avery's motivations are for turning to the slave trade, nor do we know what effect psychologically it has on him or his crew. But Avery operating as an unlicensed trader appears to be his first step into piracy. After all, he is acting of his own accord. Working as an unlicensed slave trader definitely gave Henry Avery the experience that would help him once he reached the East Indies because he was capturing ships along the way and often taking people of color 
captive as cargo that he could sell, which honestly wasn't too uncommon for many pirates. Many, many, many pirates would come across ships and if there happened to be enslaved people on the ships, the pirates would take them and count them as part of the cargo. And so of course, Henry Avery is no exception here, but he does have the unique experience of actually being a slave trader. So he knows the value that these people would have, how much you could sell them for, and he would also know how to keep them captive effectively to keep them both subjugated, but also alive. So that way they could get the best value out of these people. And this is definitely going to have a major factor on his successes when he would go into the East Indies, because he would know how to capture people and also how to deal with them and basically get as much as he could out of them as possible. It's summer 1693 in Gravesend a large port town on the banks of the River Thames. Henry Avery has given up on his career as a slave trader. But since leaving his childhood home many years ago, he has not yet found his fortune. However, a new job opportunity might change his luck. Avery wants to join an expedition of four warships bound for the Caribbean. However, these ships aren't preparing to go out to war they are on an economic rescue mission on behalf of the failing English economy. So by the 1690s, Britain's economy is definitely struggling. They've been embroiled in numerous wars against other European nations, especially as they're trying to solidify their power in the Caribbean. So at this point, Britain's main goal is to do everything they can to basically ruin any competitor's economy. So what they want is to start attacking French ships. And so Henry Avery is actually involved in this. Desperate London investors led by Sir James Hublon, a wealthy merchant, have hired the warships to sail to the Caribbean. They will trade goods with Spanish allies, plunder French vessels, attack French outposts, and salvage any Spanish wrecks. And the financial incentives are good so Hublon promises sailors a month's wage will be paid up front and regular pay every six months throughout the venture. At this time, when the country's and individuals' finances are in dire straits, it's an opportunity Avery cannot pass up. Henry Avery joins the flagship leading the expedition. His commander is Charles Gibson, captain of the 46-gun frigate Charles II. Avery's exemplary references in nautical prowess has landed him the job as the ship's first mate. With a month's wage in his pocket, he and the sailors of the Charles II, the James, Dove, and Seventh Son no doubt feel they have landed a golden opportunity. With crews and ships ready, it is time to leave. It is an impressive sight for the locals as the four warships disembark from Gravesend sailing down the choppy Thames towards the Channel. But the convoy doesn't sail directly to the Caribbean to plunder the French. First, it sets a course for Spain to acquire the documentation needed from the Spanish government, permitting this English endeavor on behalf of Spain. Little does Henry Avery know, this commission is about to radically change the course of his life and propel him into pirate history. It's early 1694 in La Coruña, Spain. The Spanish have been on the lookout for the Charles II and the other English warships for months. The journey should have only taken two weeks. 
but the ships are nowhere in sight. Five months after departing Gravesend, the convoy finally arrives in the harbor of La Coruña. The English ships are a sight for sore eyes, but the reasons for their lengthy delay remains unclear. The ships cast their anchors, and the captains and first mates go ashore to fetch the required documents. But there's a problem. The Spanish permits should have arrived from Madrid, but they're not there. The plan is to sail to the West Indies and take the fight to the French. But in order to depart, they need documents, you know, they need authorizations. There has to be a series of boxes ticked before things can go. But that process is delayed. It takes an extremely long time for any kind of document exchange to really occur. This is a moment in history where the organizational needs of empire had somewhat exceeded the informational exchange capacity of the infrastructure that existed at the time. You want to conduct your war on a global scale, but you still have to rely on what is essentially as fast as the wind will carry you. That is how fast your information can travel. All the English ships can do now is wait. Avery, like other sailors, thinks this will be a day or two, a clerical error to resolve quickly. He is wrong. Days become weeks. And weeks become months. Without these papers, Avery and the crew are stranded. To make matters worse, no one is receiving any pay, and the situation aboard the ships is growing desperate. Seeds of frustration begin to sprout amongst the crew members. Rumors of conspiracies start to spread. Some sailors fear that they have been lied to, that they have been sold to the Spanish as enslaved people. The unease is pushing Avery to act. Nobody knows what's going on. No one is being paid any of their wages. And the men are not only getting angry, they're also starting to get nervous. And there's rumors starting to go around that they might be sitting there as bait for the Spanish and they might even be sold into slavery press them into the Spanish Navy, maybe press them onto Spanish ships, or even sell them into Spanish colonies, again, as a way to try to attack England. In the meantime, the men's wives at home have actually been trying to put together petitions in order to have their men released from the service because they're afraid of this too. They're not getting the wages that their husbands should be getting, which they would send home to their wives. So the wives are in a lot of dire straits. It's May 6, 1694. On the Charles II, Captain Gibson is ill and shut away in his cabin. Avery knows this is an opportune moment since unease is rife amongst the crew. He has had enough of sitting and waiting in the harbor of La Coruña for documents and payments that now seem unlikely ever to come. It's time for action. Ashore, meeting in a dark tavern, Avery gathers men from the Charles II and the James in secret. Avery's proposition stirs the anxious sailors. They've sat in the Spanish harbor for too long, but no longer. If they mutiny, they can take the ship and make their fortune plundering the waters around Africa. There are plenty of French vessels to be found there. Avery believes that they can get wealthy and later slip back into colonial society. Perhaps he attempts to relieve the doubters by arguing they are just doing what king and country demands, 
taking the war to the enemy. And as self-employed privateers, no company will hold them hostage like this again. Looking at the men, he waits for their response. There's a moment of hesitation amongst them, and rightfully so. Mutiny and pirating can easily end with a short drop and a sudden stop at the end of a hangman's noose. Some men also fear that they won't get out of the harbour alive. The long guns from the Spanish fort and English ships will have no trouble sinking the Charles II. Avery admits it is a risk, but he assures them that they can do it. The element of surprise will be on their side. Avery is a compelling man. His enthusiasm and self-assuredness are infectious. Not only do they all agree to Avery's plan, but he is appointed as captain of this new venture. But pulling off a mutiny is not done on the fly. I think that they realized that they needed to make a hasty exit, but it doesn't seem like anyone anticipated that this was going to occur. But once they commit to this, I think they realize there's no hanging around. But there is also not a sense that the rest of the fleet was anticipating that someone was going to go rogue. So one thing about mutinies is I think they have a reputation of sort of being spontaneous and sometimes very sort of ugly, messy, disorderly moments. But when you read into trial transcripts about mutinies from this period, they appear to be extremely well-planned and well-executed on a very tight, you know, sometimes down to the minute. It is 9 p.m. on May 7th, 1694. The rippling ocean sparkles in the silver moonlight. Ashore, the Spanish port is quiet with little movement. Aboard the Charles II, Captain Gibson remains unconscious from his fever. There's an expectancy in the night air as crew members make sly eye contact. Avery sends a small boat to the James to collect his recruits. Meanwhile, aboard the Charles II, Avery's co-conspirators begin to arm themselves, ensuring their cutlasses and pistols are ready. Avery orders the men not to kill anyone, but be ready for a fight. The small boat from the Charles II comes alongside the James. One man hails another on deck, using the agreed password, saying, Is your drunken bosun on board? The man aboard the James is confused. He shouts at the men to clarify. What Avery's crew in the small boat don't realize is this man is not one of the mutineers. But they shout back, we're ready to take the Charles. Get the men, we'll row you over. Realizing what is going on, the man darts off. He's going to tell the captain. Avery's element of surprise has been spoiled. Before the alarm can be sounded, the 25 men Avery recruited from the James launch the pinnace and row hard with the fleeing small boat towards the Charles II. Avery hears the commotion from the James echoing over the water. He spots the two ships headed directly for him. A jolt of fear goes through him. He has to act now before his plan crumbles. 
with the men from the James rushing over, Avery gives the signal to his co-conspirators. Avery and 20-plus men rush the unsuspecting crew members, cutlasses and pistols drawn. They're swift, and the swarmed crew do not have time to react. Avery takes control of the quarterdeck and has a man ready at the helm. The captives are strong-armed and taken below into the hold. The captain of the James is aware of what's going on. As the recruits from the James climb aboard, the captain of the other ship begins to fire warning shots. The cannon fire alerts the Spanish fort and they begin to ready their guns. Avery orders his men to cut the anchor line. There's no time to pull it up. Two men begin to hack at the thick line with axes until it is severed. Others scurry up the rat lines to unfold the sails. Within moments, the ship's sails are open and a strong wind catches them, pulling the Charles II out of the harbor. The Spanish fort shoots at the hijacked ship as it breaks out of the harbor. But no hit is made. Amidst incoming cannons, the Charles II successfully maneuvers its way out of the harbor and out of reach of the guns. And before any ship can get after them, the wind speeds them out into the open ocean, and they vanish into the night. With La Coruña far behind, and no sign of any ships on his tail, it's easy to imagine Avery feeling electrified with his success. He tells his captives, I am bound to Madagascar with a design of making my own fortune. Avery's helmsman lays in a course for the continent of Africa. But before Avery makes their way too far south, he has to decide what to do with Captain Gibson and others locked in the hold. They must choose between joining Avery or risk the consequence of defying him. Next time on Real Pirates. Henry Avery has command of the Charles II. Heading towards Southern Africa, he is about to begin a series of ruthless raids that will make him one of the most famous and feared pirates on the water. Not only is Avery setting himself up for pirate infamy, his ruthlessness to seek his fortune may jeopardize British trade relations and put a target on his back. But with great risk, come great rewards. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boreau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Beckson, written by Luke Coons, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matias Torres Sole, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Mm -hmm.